0: You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com.
1: Welcome, my friends, welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on this 10th day of September 2012. My website is corbettreport.com, and if you go there, you can find previous editions of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, videos, and radio shows that I've created, conducted, and hosted over the past five years, as well as links to all of the documents cited in today's episode, Sorted by Time Index, on the podcast tab of the homepage. And I hope that people will go there and, as I say, use that completely free and commercial-free media as a resource, which is really all that it is. And I hope it is a useful resource for you. And as always, if you do find that to be a useful resource, it is kept free and commercial-free by the support of listeners out there like yourself. So once again, a big thank you to all of the subscribers to The Corbett Report whose monthly contributions make this report possible. But on that note, let me mention something that I mentioned on the radio show last week, and that is a little bit disconcerting. And that is that PayPal has started randomly suspending the accounts of some of my subscribers for no obviously apparent reason. And when that happens, PayPal sends me an email saying that the account has been suspended because payment has failed... And PayPal sends the person on the other end an email saying that I have suspended the subscription. Let me assure you, I have suspended nobody's subscription and I have no reason to do so. So hopefully if you have received one of those emails, you can get in touch with me, of course, uh, through the contact form or through any previous correspondence we've had and uh, get this sorted out. It seems that the only way to continue with the subscription is to sign up once again, because there's no way to reactivate the payment once that it's been suspended. I don't know what's happening, I don't know why this is suddenly happening to so many accounts, but unfortunately it is, and just in the past two weeks, Scott and Luis and Robert and Steven and Sana and Nadejda and Stella and Eric and Danuta and James and David And many others, unfortunately, have had their accounts suspended, so please get in touch with me if that has happened to you, and we'll get that sorted out. I'm not sure why this is happening, but it's just one of those things. So hopefully for people who have had their accounts suspended, they can get that going again, and you won't miss a single issue of the weekly newsletter, which once again comes out each Saturday Contains my international forecaster editorial. Contains recommended reading and viewing. Contains uh, d- discounts on all of the DVDs—a 33% discount on all of the DVDs just for being a subscriber. And once a month, contains my subscriber-only video. So again, I try to pack in as much value as I possibly can into 100 Japanese yen or a buck forty a month, which is uh, hopefully not too much to ask to keep this media coming. And on that note, we have a big episode today, so let's get straight into today's episode.
2: This week, we mark the 11th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. It's time to remember the nearly 3,000 innocent men, women, and children we lost and the families that they left behind. It's a chance to honor the courage of the first responders who risked their lives on that day and every day since. And it's an opportunity to give thanks for our men and women in uniform who have served and sacrificed, sometimes far from home, to keep our country safe. This anniversary is about them. It's also a time to reflect on just how far we've come as a nation these past 11 years. On that clear September morning, as America watched the towers fall and the Pentagon burn and the records smoldering in a Pennsylvania field, we were filled with questions. Where had the attacks come from, and how would America respond? Would they fundamentally weaken the country we love? Would they change who we are? The last decade has been a difficult one. But together, we have answered those questions and come back stronger as a nation. We took the fight to al Qaeda, decimating their leadership, and put them on the path to defeat. And thanks to the courage and skill of our intelligence personnel and armed forces, Osama bin Laden will never threaten America again. Instead of pulling back from the world, we've strengthened our alliances, while improving our security here at home. As Americans, we refuse to live in fear. Today, a new tower rises above the New York skyline, and our country is stronger, safer, and more respected in the world. Instead of turning on each other, we resisted the temptation to give in to mistrust and suspicion. I've always said that America is at war with Al Qaeda and its affiliates, and we will never be at war with Islam or any other religion. We are the United States of America. Our freedom and diversity make us unique and they will always be central to who we are as a nation. Instead of changing who we are, the attacks have brought out the best in the American people. More than 5 million members of the 9-11 generation have worn America's uniform over the past decade, and we've seen an outpouring of goodwill towards our military, our veterans, and their families. Together, they've done everything we've asked of them. We've ended the war in Iraq and brought our troops home. we brought an end to the Taliban regime. We've trained Afghan security forces and forged a partnership with a new Afghan government. And by the end of 2014, the transition in Afghanistan will be complete and our war there will be over. And finally, instead of turning inward with grief, we've honored the memory of those we lost by giving back to our communities, serving those in need, and reaffirming the values at the heart of who we are as a people. That's why we mark September 11th as a national day of service and remembrance, because we are one American family, and we look out for each other, not just on the difficult days, but every day. Eleven years later, that's the legacy of 9-11. The ability to say with confidence that no adversary and no act of terrorism can change who we are. We are Americans, and we will protect and preserve this country we love. On this solemn anniversary let's remember those we lost let us reaffirm the values they stood for and
1: let us keep moving forward as one nation and one people welcome to episode 242 of the corbett report podcast the meaning of 9-11 truth that was the weekly presidential address for september 8th 2012 and those are the remarks of commander-in-chief barack obama on the eve of this 11th anniversary of the tragic events of 9-11. And as with so many other pronouncements from the teleprompter-in-chief, that one, too, contains at least a half-truth. Certainly on that clear September morning, Americans and people around the world were filled with questions. However, the half-lie of the other half of that half-truth is that those questions were never satisfactorily answered, And that is self-evident to anyone who has attempted to look into the issue. Some of these questions include, Why has NIST classified the data that they used to make their computer animation of the WTC-7 collapse? Would knowledge of how NIST believes the building collapsed really jeopardize public safety? Why did the DIA destroy more than 2.5 terabytes of data on their Able Danger investigation, that reportedly identified four of the alleged hijackers years in advance of the attack? Why did the Pentagon buy up and burn the entire first print run of Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer's book on the program? Why did the SEC destroy their records on the 9-11 insider trading question, presumably the most important investigation in the agency's history? Why did the alleged mastermind of 9-11, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Confess not only to plotting 9-11 from A to Z, but also confess to masterminding numerous crimes that he could not have committed. Why did Osama bin Laden repeatedly deny any involvement in the attacks until a series of mistranslated and otherwise manipulated videos come along, appearing to portray him as taking credit for those attacks? Why was the report of US State Department Frank Taylor supposedly proving the case for Al-Qaeda's role in 9-11 which NATO used to justify its invasion of Afghanistan, presented in a classified briefing. Why is that report still classified to this day? Why did the 9-11 Commission rely so heavily on the confessions extracted through torture, which even the Senate's own Armed Services Committee point out is specifically used to extract false confessions? Why did the CIA destroy 92 videotapes of the illegal torture techniques that being used in these sessions after being specifically ordered by a court not to do so? Why did the courts eventually absolve the CIA of any culpability for this crime? Why did Donald Rumsfeld announce a new war on September 10th, 2001? What was the reason for the $2.3 missing dollars which the Pentagon had lost up to that point? What did Rumsfeld's war on bureaucracy hope to achieve? How was that war hindered when the budget analyst office in the Pentagon was destroyed the following morning? And where are the public records into this accounting scandal? Why did Rumsfeld go into a regularly scheduled meeting with a CIA officer in his office on the morning of 9-11? after both of the Twin Towers had been struck by airplanes and it had been determined that America was under attack. Why did the highest ranking official in the US military remain in that meeting and unavailable for contact, even by his highest staff members, as the worst attack on US soil in history continued to unfold? Why did he suddenly come out for a photo op on the Pentalon after the explosion instead of helping to coordinate the defense of the nation? Why is there such a massive discrepancy between the 9 11 Commission's official finding of the time of entry of Dick Cheney into the Presidential Emergency Operations Center on the morning of 9 11 and Transportation Secretary Norman Mineta's testimony of the timing of that arrival? Why did the U.S. government contract with PTEC, an enterprise architecture software firm, to install its backdoor access software on some of the most sensitive databases in the U.S. government? Why did they continue to use PTECH even after it was discovered that its sweetheart investor was a specially designated global terrorist on the Treasury's own terror list? Why did they declare that there was nothing untoward in the software mere hours after raiding PTECH's offices in 2002? And what was PTECH doing in the basement of the Pentagon on 9-11? What interoperability tests was it running on the link between FAA and NORAD systems on 9-11? And how did that interfere with the FAA and NORAD's response? And, perhaps most tellingly of all, how did four hijacked aircraft fly so wildly off course for such lengthy periods of time without being confronted by a single fighter interceptor? And why did the Pentagon admittedly and on the record lie to the American public about the timing of its response that day?
3: There's way too much to cover here, but I will begin. According to your report, the first of the four airliner hijackings occurred on September 11th at 8.14 a.m. Eastern Time. At 10.03 a.m., almost two hours later, an hour and 49 minutes to be exact, the fourth and last plane crashed before reaching its intended target, the U.S. Capitol, because of the incredible heroism of its passengers, including Minnesota native Thomas Burnett Jr. During those entire 109 minutes, to my reading of your report, this com- country and its citizens were completely undefended. Yes, it was a surprise attack. It was unprecedented. Yes, it exposed serious flaws, and as you've noted, our imaginations, our policies, capabilities, and management designs. But what I find much more shocking and alarming were the repeated and catastrophic failures of the leaders in charge and the other people responsible to do their jobs, to follow established procedures, to follow direct orders from civilian and military commanders. And then they failed to tell us the truth later. It doesn't matter whether they were Republicans, Democrats, or neither. It matters what they did or did not do. According to your findings, FAA authorities failed to inform the military command, NORAD, The North American Aerospace Defense Command about three of the four hijackings until after the planes had crashed into their targets at the Second World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the ground in Pennsylvania, which was not their target. The direct FAA notification of the military occurred regarding the first plane 23 minutes after it was hijacked and only nine minutes before it struck the first World Trade Tower. NORAD then scrambled one of only two sets of fighter planes on alert in the entire eastern third of the country. One in Massachusetts, one in Virginia, but it didn't know where to send them because the hijackers had turned off the plane's transponder so NORAD couldn't locate it on their radar. And they're still looking for it when it exploded into its target at 8.46 AM. The second hijacking began, according to your report, one minute later. NORAD wasn't notified until the same minute that the plane struck the second World Trade Tower. and It was five more minutes before NORAD's mission commander, learned about that explosion, which was five minutes after thousands of Americans saw it on live television. By this time, the third plane's transponder was off. Communication had been severed, yet it was 15 minutes before the flight controller decided to notify the regional FAA Center, which in turn did not inform FAA headquarters for another 15 minutes. So at that point, point, 9.25 a.m., FAA's National Command Center knew that there were two hijacked planes that had crashed into the two World Trade Centers and a third plane had stopped communicating and disappeared from its primary radar, yet no one at the FAA headquarters asked for military assistance with that plane either. NORAD was unaware that the plane had even been hijacked until after it crashed into the Pentagon at 934. This is just unbelievable negligence. It doesn't matter if we spend $550 billion annually on our national defense, if we reorganize our intelligence, or if we restructure congressional oversight, if people don't pick up a phone to call one another, if we're not told that somebody needs a new radar system or doesn't install it when it's provided. And this was not an occasional human error or failure. This was nothing but human error and failure to follow established procedures and to use common sense. And unfortunately, The chronicle is not over. NORAD Missioner commander ordered his only three other planes on alert in Virginia to scramble and fly north to Baltimore. Minutes later, when he was told that a plane was approaching Washington, he learned that the planes were flying east over the Atlantic Ocean, away from Baltimore and Washington, so that when the third plane struck the Pentagon, NORAD's fighters were 150 miles away, farther than they were before they took off. By then, FAA's command center had learned of the fourth hijacking and called FAA headquarters, specifically asking it to contact the military at 9.36 a.m., and at 9.46 a.m., the FAA command center updated FAA headquarters that United Flight 93 was, quote, now 29 minutes out of Washington, D.C. Three minutes later, your document records this following conversation the FAA command center to the headquarters. Command center. uh, do we want to uh, think about scrambling aircraft? FAA headquarters, oh, God, I don't know. Command center, uh, that's a decision somebody's going to have to make probably in the next 10 minutes. FAA headquarters, uh, yeah, you know, everybody, everybody just left the room. At 1003, United Flight 93 crashed into Pennsylvania farm soil, and nobody from the FAA headquarters had contacted the military. NORAD didn't know that this fourth plane was hijacked until after it crashed 35 minutes later. The fighter planes had reached Washington seven minutes after that crash, and they were told by the mission commander negative clearance to shoot the aircraft over the nation's capital. Yet one week, yet one week after 9-11, In response to initial reports that the military failed to defend our domestic airspace during the hijacks, NORAD issued an official chronology which stated that the FAA notified NORAD of the second hijacking at 8.43, wrong, FAA notified NORAD of the third hijacking at 9.24, according to your report, wrong, FAA notified NORAD of the fourth hijacking at an unspecified time, and that prior to the crash in Pennsylvania, Langley F-16, combat air patrol planes were in place remaining in place to protect Washington DC all untrue in public testimony before your 9-11 Commission in May of 2003 NORAD officials stated I assume under oath that at 916 they had received the hijack notification of flight 90 United flight 93 from the FAA that hijacking did not occur until 928 there was a routine cockpit transmission recovered at 927 And in that testimony before you, NORAD officials stated also that at 9.24, they received notice of the hijacking of the third plane, American Flight 77. Also untrue, according to your report, it states that NORAD was never notified that that flight was hijacked. NORAD uh, officials testified that they scrambled the Langley, Virginia fighters to respond to those two hijackings, yet tape recordings of both NORAD and FAA, both reportedly documented that the order to scramble was in response to an an inaccurate FAA report that American Flight 11 had not hit the first World Trade Tower and was headed to Washington. That erroneous alert was transmitted by the FAA at 9.24 a.m., 38 minutes after that airplane had exploded into the World Trade Tower. Yet NORAD's public chronology on 9-18-01 and their commission testimony 20 months later covered up those truths. They lied to the American people, they lied to Congress, and they lied to your 9-11 commission to create a false impression of competence, communication, coordination, and protection of the American people. And we can set up all of the oversight possible at great additional cost to the American taxpayers, and it won't be worth an Enron pension if the people responsible lie to us.
1: All of these questions, and many, many more like them, too numerous to catalog here, have been asked time and time again here on this podcast, on other alternative media broadcasts, and by average citizens across the United States and around the globe time and time again since 9-11-2001. And despite the pronouncements from the Oval Office that we heard earlier, these questions have not been answered. And in the case of the 9-11 insider trading investigation by the SEC or the able danger investigation by the DIA or the torture confessions of the alleged 9-11 mastermind or all of those situations in which the underlying documentation have been destroyed, the implication is that many of these questions can no longer be answered at all. The underlying fact, the underlying truth here is that there are still unanswered questions about 9-11 and that those people whose very job it was to provide us with answers to these questions have signally failed in their task. Now we can arrive at this bedrock truth that there are unanswered questions about 9-11 but of course the answer the question the further question is where do we go from there and it is very tempting for us to start trying to provide answers to these things without having the data to really be able to answer them. Just as nature abhors a vacuum, so too does our 24-7 modern iPhone-wielding microwave-using quick-fix society abhor an unanswered question. But it's important to remember that it is not our job to provide answers to these questions when we do not have access to the data that would allow us to provide any sort of meaningful answer to these questions. It is not our position to be the ones doing that and doing the government's job for it. We do not have access to the underlying data, so we cannot presume to be able to answer all of these questions but it isn't our job, it isn't our task, and the onus does not fall on us. This is something that was highlighted quite vividly in my recent appearance on Ground Zero Radio with Clyde Lewis and James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com, where we were discussing the alleged murder of Osama bin Laden in May of last year, and we took a call from a caller named Rusty.
4: Let's go to some calls right now, calling in tonight from Ohio. It's Rusty. Hi, Rusty. You're on Grounds here with James Corbett and James Evan Palato. Go ahead. How
5: are you doing? How are you doing? Good. I was passing by the radio and I heard the conversation. And I'm not buying into the fact that there are all these different possibilities about uh, bin Laden.
4: Okay. And even though we've cited sources, you don't buy into the possibilities.
5: I don't believe any of the sources. But now with you, I don't want to make a bet because... People are bringing you information, and you probably don't know whether it's right or wrong. But the gentleman who's, who's making all of these claims, I would like to make a bet with him. All he has to do is, is proof, and all he has to do is name, name the amount. There's no joke. I want him to put his money where his mouth is.
4: What are you talking about?
5: I want him to make a bet. I want him to bet that Osama Obama is dead. What you called uh, We're not saying
4: or, he's not dead. We're saying he died in 2001, Rusty. Yeah,
5: I understand. And he did. No, no. I understand what you said. Okay. He's dead. And I'm saying I don't believe you. Prove it. And put a reasonable
4: amount of money on it. Okay, so, well, what do you have What do you have to prove that it isn't true? I didn't Wait a minute. I don't have to. No, you're I making was, the bet. You got to oh, give me You got to give me something to compare it to so I know that I'm not into a sucker bet here. I've got resources. I've got James and James giving me resources as well. We've been giving you so many resources, and you don't buy it, so you're going to put up money and bet. Well, I can show you my resources, but that's not going to satisfy a bet. No way. It doesn't satisfy Jack. No, no, no. No, no, no. What, Rusty? You don't make any sense. You made a claim. I did make a claim, and I stick by my claim, because the sources say that he died in 2001. You've got all of these leaders saying <laughs> that he died in 2001. you got Karzai, <laughs> you got O'Sharif, you got uh, Benazir Bhutto, who ended up being assassinated after she made the claim that he was I killed. I because I heard what you were talking Yes, about. So okay, I so I'm that giving that you about. all the names and all the sources, and you still say that you don't buy it. Well, that's fine, you don't have that's to buy it, but putting up a bet right. is stupid. I don't buy it.
5: And okay. if you name all of these sources and all these possibilities, and you got word from this person and that newspaper and this, all I'm saying is prove it. And I'll put my money where my office. Who
4: are the sources that you value, Rusty? It's irrelevant. What do you mean I'm it's irrelevant? Talented. there's what? gonna be a bet here, I'm not gonna be betting, I'm not gonna be putting my friends on the line with a bet if you're not gonna provide sources that you think are credible sources. You're no. not making any sense, Rusty. You say I don't buy it, but i will put up a bet. Okay, you put um, up a bet. But okay, what's that gonna out. prove? You have nothing, you have nothing to back up your bet with. Time out. I say Obama did it. Obama I agree did with what? It.
5: I say that Obama's... uh, Okay,
4: I'll make a bet that Obama didn't do it. If we go by the original story, the Navy SEALs did it, and Obama didn't do a damn thing. Just sat back and said, okay, I'm going to take the credit for it. That may be.
5: (laughs) But the fellow that you have on is giving all of these uh, other possible options. No,
4: he's not. He's giving what has been reported. Can
1: I step in for a second? Can I step in for a second? Please. I I, I don't mind. I, I, I think... I think you're misunderstanding what I'm saying, because I'm not saying that he he died in 2001 or he died in 2011. I'm saying I don't know, and I'm looking for the proof. So if you have the proof, please provide it to me. I'm thirsting for it. I'm hungering for the proof. Just give it to me. Lay it on me.
5: No. Oh No, I can't provide it. Time out. Time out. Time out. There's no point in yelling time out. Uh, Nobody's heard... yelling. We're wondering yeah, it's where it is. are quiet. Coming.
4: It's very quiet. We were waiting for you you're to say so something, Rusty. True
5: your reason for bringing those up is you're saying Obama didn't, couldn't have done it because of all of these other things, all of these other claims. He couldn't have done it because of all these other claims. That's what you're coming across with. So all I'm saying is prove one of those other claims. I don't have to prove Obama. You're just saying that Obama didn't do it because these guys did. And I'm saying prove it.
4: Nobody said that anybody did anything. It was all reported. And, and then, of course, we come around and we have another phantom report. And what I'm saying is is that with, this, with all of this disinformation, all the stories are nonsense because they cancel themselves out. Then why pass any of them along? Because it's what everybody needs to do to make their own decisions, Rusty, as to whether or not it happened or not, the way it's said, the and way the narrative's giving us.
5: The first premise is that you're bringing all of these up to show that Obama
4: didn't do it. And you said it's much. No, I'm bringing them up to show that there is something called an attention deficit democracy in this country where we're completely uh, buffaloed because everything goes into the memory hole and is flushed several times in hopes that none of the crap comes back up again in the cesspool. That's what I'm pointing out, Rusty. Then why bring all this up? Because he's going to use it as a staple for his campaign.
1: Exactly. No, the point is that we have to prove something about things that we don't have any access to any of the information. The administration has all of the right. data they could possibly need, and they're not showing it to us. They That's have to
5: prove it I'm to concerned. us, not the other for, way around. I voted for Bush to daddy. I voted for uh, Clinton. I voted for Bush to son two times. This isn't
4: about politics. It's about whether or not we're being deceived. Now, That's what it's about, Rusty. I'm sorry, say that again? I said, this isn't about politics, it's about whether or not we're being deceived. I understand.
5: So what you're doing is that your premise is that Obama's deceiving us. And if it's not, that's not your premise, the rest of it makes no sense. So that has to be your premise.
4: No, the premise is is that our government, they deceive us all the time. Not just Obama, but also Bush, also the one before him and the one before him. It's all a big agenda, and we all follow along like cattle and sheep to the slaughter. And, Rusty, that's the point. It's not about politics. It's not red state. It's not blue state. It's the state versus you. It's always been that way, Rusty. So there you go. If you are thinking it's because of pardon politics, you're wrong. I don't disagree with that. You're okay, I absolutely then.
5: don't disagree
4: with All me. right, then we're, we're of common ground, and we have to leave. Thank you, Rusty, for the call. We'll be back with more. Keep it here on Ground Zero. Don't go away. James Corbett is with us, and also James Evan Pilato. We'll be back.
1: What do you make of that? Somehow it has entered into the popular imagination that those who raise the unanswered questions of something like 9-11 or the death of Osama bin Laden or 7-7 or any other major investigation into one of the major and defining political events of our generation, has to somehow provide the total answer of what did happen in the positive sense and a complete theory of how that happened in order to be able to pose those unanswered questions and point out that the official story can't be true. This, of course, is not the case. It does not logically follow that because I know and I can prove that the official case is not true, that I can thus therefore prove what did happen. Well, we don't have access to that data. We don't have access to those documents. We don't have access to the insiders. We don't have subpoena power. You and I do not have any of the powers that would be needed to even begin to broach an investigation into what really happened. And it is not incumbent on us to create some sort of theory about what happened in order to somehow satiate those people out there who cannot live for 10 seconds without an unanswered question in the room, because that might trouble their beliefs enough that they might have to actually start doing some of their own research and deciding for themselves what information they will or won't take on board and why they will or won't take it on board. Everyone is waiting for some media source or some government official or someone to come along to tell them what to think. But the point of the real 9-11 truth investigation is to trouble people's beliefs enough to tell them there are no people who are going to be able to tell you what to think in a reasonable manner. There are only people who are going to try to soft-soap you with something absolutely ridiculous and using uh, absolutely zero evidence to back up their assertions. And the question is, will you buy it? There is the metaphor of the court of public opinion, and I think that that is perhaps a fruitful metaphor for us to apply in this case, because if there is a court of public opinion, then you and I are the jury, and the prosecution in this case, in the case of 9-11, is the U.S. government itself making the case that Al-Qaeda was responsible. We are the jury. We're listening to the evidence. The prosecutor is putting forward their evidence, and we as the jury are just deciding whether or not the case that they are making is true or not. Is al-Qaeda guilty based on this evidence? Is it? Did it happen in the way that they said? Did they present a coherent case? Is there any flaws or holes in their case? And we are the ones who examine that data, and we give the thumbs up or the thumbs down, and that's what the court of public opinion is. It is not our job as the jury to provide some theory about what did or didn't happen. That's ridiculous. That does not happen in a courtroom, and it does not happen when the U.S. government is trying to convince the court of public opinion that al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden were responsible for 9-11 and that nothing else was untoward that day. This is an important point, so let's go to a conversation that I had last year with documentary filmmaker and researcher Tom Secker of Investigating the about this very point and why it is not incumbent on us to provide a theory of what happened simply to point out that the theory that the government is proposing cannot
0: be the case. Now, the way I see this situation... Um, or I am increasingly seeing this whole situation is this is a interrogation. we are the citizens we are interrogating the state we are we suspect that they have may have been involved in this horrendous crime, and with good reasons for those suspicions, there are lots of historical precedents, and the official version of this does not make any bloody sense, so that suspicion is perfectly well founded and of course, I share it. Um, But if you're in an interrogation with a suspect, the state is, in effect, a criminal suspect in this situation. If you're in an interrogation, does it make more sense to march into the interrogation room and say, we know you did it, we know how you did it, and this is how you did it? Because what happens if you've got it wrong? What happens is the suspect sits there and rather smugly thinks, ah, these people aren't as smart as they think they are. They don't really know that I did it. They don't really know how I did it. So if I just shut up, and don't really engage them in this, chances are nothing will come of it, because they won't be able to really go anywhere. However, if you march into the interrogation room and you say, we've had a look at your alibi, and in this context the alibi would be the Home Office narrative, we've had a look at your alibi, and your alibi doesn't make any sense. In fact, some of it is obviously untrue. So, what's going on here? then that puts the pressure on them to then have to come up with a new explanation and a new alibi. And if you can get them to do this four or five times, as has sort of happened with the 9-11 situation and the, the air defences and, <clears throat> and NORAD and all of that, then you get to the point where no one's going to bloody believe them anymore because they're going to have told you four or five alibis, all of which are nonsense. So I think that strategically makes a lot more sense than marching in there and saying, we know how this was done. When, in truth, we don't know. Not yet. Hopefully we will. Really, hopefully. You know, we can do this. Um, But at this point, with the evidence we have right now, I think it strategically makes a hell of a lot more sense to just knock down their alibi systematically and, you know, doggedly knock down their alibis and force the pressure onto them to keep talking about this rather than make an accusation that we can't really back up properly and have them just sort of sit there and say, well, that's not true. So sort off.
1: Well, that's—I mean—that's extremely sage advice, and I really do hope that the listeners and viewers do take that to heart and at least consider it, because it, it does strike me as as counterproductive at times to to come in thinking that you know everything about what happened and how it happened and who is to blame, and thus really painting yourself into a corner where if you are wrong or if you get any part of that story wrong, then your mm. entire theory can be demolished and and it just doesn't seem like it really serves the purpose so so i think that is extremely important to to contemplate and to bear in mind um but it it also raises i mean this can get very meta uh, meta philosophical here and we can we can ponder the various layers of thinking that can go on but it it does seem then that that a, a type of I suppose meta-conspiracy could be to to implant the meme beforehand so that when the attacks happen in the exact way that it was implanted in the media you can say well look you're just looking at this tv show you are you are you insane this is just a tv show it's fiction why are you why are you positing it so for example with 9-11 we have the lone gunman episode where the rogue elements of the government commandeer a commercial airliner by remote control to fly it into the world trade center in order to justify wars in the middle east and lo and behold, that's that's very much a conspiracy theory that is propounded about nine eleven mm-hmm. these days. Absolutely. so so again, the question becomes at, at, at a certain point is it is it valuable to to uh, well, actually, I, I, I suppose I don't know what, what question to ask from that, but it does seem that there is something, something very valuable here to, to, to ponder and to research. And, and you do spend a, a fair deal of time in the, in the documentary looking at the 7-7 analogues. And it's an interesting subject, but I just don't know where to take it. And, and, um, and I think there are too many, too many levels maybe to really determine at this point. But, but what would you suggest for people who are interested in, in pondering that aspect of, of, the, uh, of the crime more, more deeply or more closely?
0: Well, I mean, firstly, look into all of these these different films and and various episodes of TV shows and things that I included in in, uh, in the documentary. Um, there may be others out there that I've missed. I mean, I tried to do a relatively comprehensive job of the things that I and, and cover all the things that I thought were particularly significant. Um, but yeah, go go and watch all of these episodes. And also, you see, I mean, you brought up the the lone gunman and nine eleven, but there were other TV shows and films that also predicted 9-11 in various ways. There was an episode of um, Martial Law with Sam o. Hung. I think it was the very last episode of the second series which features a sort of international rogue terrorist group hijacking a series of planes by remote and crashing them into cities. So once again we have a very similar kind of scenario and, and once again we are presented with a, a conspiracy theory. Um, there are there are other films and and other real life events, of course, as well that in some way foreshadowed 9/11. So I think it's important to look at all of these things, and I think it's important to see how we are almost being presented with an argument before an event, about an event, before that event has happened. So we are presented with. Uh, simulations, fictional depictions that give us an official conspiracy theory and support an official conspiracy theory, and we are also given the same that support alternative conspiracy theories. So if there is a plot here, then I think the aim would be to push us into these two separate groups. So we are just two different mobs, both of which have their own conspiracy theories, and all we're really getting doing is having a war of conspiracy theories. We aren't really pushing for further investigation, we aren't supporting citizens' investigations like the July 7th Truth Campaign and like the various independents and obviously the groups who have investigated all sorts of other atrocities and other events. Um, We aren't, you know, putting the pressure on the state and putting the pressure on the police to, to reopen their inquiries. Um, And we aren't really encouraging other people to become skeptical so that when further things like this happen in the future, we're already skeptical of them and we're already in a position to investigate them for ourselves. All of that kind of goes out the window and all of that's, you know, the most important stuff that we can be doing is those three things pushing for further public inquiry, supporting citizens' investigations, and encouraging scepticism in the public. Those, to me, are the three aims of all of this, or the, the three most important aims. But all of that kind of gets forgotten if you get engaged in this rather childish and, and herd-like dialogue, where all you're really doing is trying to argue that your conspiracy theory is ever so slightly better than the government's conspiracy theory. And sure, a lot of them are. But that doesn't mean they're true, it just means they're slightly better than a load of tosh. And is that really a fight worth having? Is that really a fight worth winning? I don't think so.
1: Once again, Tom Secker of InvestigatingTheTerror.com, and that's an excerpt from an interview that I conducted last year for GRTV on his documentary film, 7-7 Crime and Prejudice. Now you'll note that Tom Secker takes that court analogy somewhat differently and positions us in the role of the the prosecutor, I I don't think so. I I will stand by my uh, conviction that we are the jury and thus it is the state's uh, job to try to prosecute their case and we are the ones who get to decide on that and pronounce on it. It doesn't mean that we're completely passive participants in this process and it certainly doesn't mean that I don't think that citizens' investigations are important or will be the most likely way that we will have at arriving at the truth of these issues. And I certainly do believe and and take it as a given that we can, in fact, create some headway in this, and that one day the perpetrators of 9-11 can and will be brought to justice. Of course, that is the underlying root of 9-11 truth, and that is what it is about, and that's what it should be about. But in the case that we're in now, with all of these unanswered questions, and without enough data to provide definitive answers to so many of them, Unfortunately, so many people can and often are led along by whoever comes along beating their chest loudly enough, proclaiming strongly enough that they have all the answers and they have it all figured out. Unfortunately, we are a type of society that very much values that type of assertiveness and people will go along with it. Whoever is propounding their particular conspiracy theory the most loudly and strongly will tend to get most of the followers out there because unfortunately, many people are still into that leader-follower complex, whereby they need a leader who just tells them in strong enough terms that they have all the answers. So it's very difficult for us as human beings to live in that state of unanswered questions, and many people will very, very strongly question why it is that we would be engaged in this process at all if we don't claim to already have the underlying answers. If we don't know what happened on 9-11, then why are we even bringing it up? What is the point of this? And I myself have gotten into some heated conversations with people who don't necessarily think that it's outlandish or far-fetched that the U.S government was somehow involved or complicit in the attacks, but are absolutely livid that someone would try to bring up these questions without presuming to have the answer about how it all went down. Because some people, I guess, are just fundamentally hardwired that they need those answers and they cannot live with the uncertainty. Well, certainly that is good insofar as it drives and propels us towards finding those answers and looking for the evidence, but that doesn't mean that we have to go in with a pre- pre-arrived conclusion and look at only for the evidence that supports that thesis. I think we have to be truly open to whatever the evidence is telling us and whatever we can actually say for certain. And the point of this aspect of 9-11 truth, the uncertainty of it, is to point out to people that there are unanswered questions, and the fact that the US government has gone so far and run the ball so far down the field when they didn't even have the ball in their hand, they haven't answered the most basic, the most simple questions that they would be able to answer about what happened on 9-11 simply by revealing the data that they already have in their vaults. The fact that they haven't done that should be a wake-up call to anyone out there who is still laboring under the pretense that the the U.S. government, or any government really, is on the citizen's side, and that they're all about truth and openness and, and transparency, and that the, none of this was about serving some sort of ulterior, ulterior political agenda, and that uh, the next time something like this happens, we should just blindly go along with whatever they say. I think it is absolutely essential to 9-11 Truth that it delegitimizes the supposed authority of the authorities who claim to be able to come along in the wake of any tragic event and any major disaster and be able to provide the answers and the solutions and then direct society in that direction. I think we have to understand that... part of an essential part of what we're doing is delegitimizing that supposed authority by which they are able to operate and to continue with their agenda whether that be the invasion of afghanistan or the invasion of iraq or whatever else comes along in the wake of whatever disaster we have to understand that our role is to tell people not to go along with it and As always, the power rests in the hands of the citizens and if the citizens do not go along with the agenda, it cannot happen, it cannot function if there is a critical mass of people who just don't believe the hype. That is an incredibly important point and it's a point that I attempted to flesh out earlier today in a conversation that I had with Jack Blood, the host of DeadlineLive.info, where we talked about the 11th anniversary of 9-11. But I, I wonder about a movement like nine eleven truth um, as as we pass over the tenth the eleventh going into the twelfth fifteenth twentieth anniversaries at what point things start to become something like the JFK uh, uh, you know the, the the I guess the example that we have to look for, at in the twentieth century of something that now pretty much everyone uh, ninety plus percent of the public believe that oswald did not act alone and know that there was some sort of conspiracy it's been admitted by the house select committee on assassinations it's been openly talked about and and is pretty much part of the public record and yeah. yet it has resulted in precisely zero on the on the political front except for some token gestures here and there at what point does 9-11 truth start to resemble that or is there a way to divert it so that it does have some sort of political relevance
6: well, that's a good question. It depends on, you know, what you want. Do you want some kind of a court judgment? There was a civil court judgment that proved that there was a conspiracy involved in Martin Luther King's death, for example. These these have not... Done anything to set the historical record book straight. So, is that the main thing, or is it the court of public opinion that matters? Because if you mention JFK, you know, 90% of the people don't believe the official story of what happened to John F. Kennedy on November 22nd, 1963. There was a recent poll put out by reinvestigate911.org showing only 7% of respondents believe they've been told the whole story of the 9 11 attacks. And I think that the court of public opinion has almost put this. Behind them, in a way, but they just—in fact, you know—this is the thing I learned, James. Going out on the streets, and we spoke all over the country, and talked about nine eleven, and met new people, and and you know, just I guess we were spreading the gospel of nine eleven truth, and just talked to new people, like we were door to door salesmen almost, or, or Mormons. And uh, what we found out is that most people were like, "Oh yeah, of course that was." you know, a false flag. And they just moved on in their lives. And what they hadn't realized is how important it was because it hinges upon our rights being taken away. It hinges upon, you know, the money that we're spending and the lives that we're losing in all of these wars, uh, these uh, wars for racket, these wars of corporate interest all over the world. And all of this has still been tied back 9-11 as an excuse you'll never hear a politician not want to milk this and say everything changed on 9-11 and that's why we've got to do all of this to you so yeah a lot of people the court of public opinion believes that it was a false flag I think in a uh, like in JFK on a majority level but how important is it and what can be done about it and I think you know in some ways the COINTELPRO that worked inside the 9-11 truth movement did its job and kind of took the fangs out of it and, um, and we're kind of where we are today, uh, and not that we wouldn't have predicted that. So here we are, and a lot of people just don't believe it. Now what? And because of the, the related circumstances of what we're seeing now is the fallout from 9-11. More people than I've ever seen before either believe, don't believe the official story and believe that you know, we need to do something to protect our rights and understand the, the gravitas of the situation and care about it, then don't care. And I think that is important.
1: Well, you're so right, because when I think about it on my own day-to-day level here in Japan, talking to all sorts of American expats and tourists and people coming through here, I have really yet to get into any sort of heated argument with anyone about 9-11 being some form of inside job, or at least a a cover-up from start to finish. I mean, pretty much everyone seems to agree with that, but the The only real heated arguments I've ever gotten into here are with people who are saying, Well,, so what? what's the point or or what so what's your theory? And that's where things start to get into the big arguments. so so, I think you're right. I think there there is a, a i don't know if we can say a large majority, but it certainly seems that way from the people I've sampled. a lot of people at any rate who truly do question nine eleven but the question is what from that? And they so, don't question it
6: as much as maybe you do or your listeners or your your audience might, but they do to some degree, and that's a that's a pretty good start.
1: It is. And in fact, to me, this is almost the point. Of course, the number one overriding point of nine eleven truth is to, to secure justice and to bring the, the perpetrators to, to justice. And that, that has to be the focus. That has to be the, the ultimate point of nine eleven truth. But if there is to be any sort of secondary point to this or something that we can take some sort of silver lining out of this gray cloud, it has to be something along the lines of the delegitimization of government because the only way that these false flag attacks can work is if people believe them in the wake of these big, massive events and to believe that what they're saying is true. And if we have a large majority of the public that just doesn't believe what they're saying, even if they, even if it doesn't have that political ramification, at least at that, that immediate level, and the very least in the wake of the next big false flag event, there will be people who will not necessarily go along with the agenda. And I think we have to build on that as a potential way of, of getting something positive out of this.
6: That is perfect, exactly the point here. I, mean, I don't know, we're, are we going to get justice? You know, I, I've been accused of being cold-hearted when talking about 9-11 because I don't care enough about the victims. And after years and years and years of coverage, we've made a few jokes such as the 19 guys with box cutters, you know, getting airplanes to, to just go under their command perfectly. Though a few years later, we had drones that could do that all by themselves. So that fills in a few more of those blanks. So but it, the important thing is is that we understand that this is a method that can be used false flag terrorism it can be traced back to operation gladio i'm sure you can go back to rome or babylon and find examples of you know the reichstag in germany of of framing people in order to push forward a political agenda which really is the definition of terrorism on its own so, the most important thing is that we can recognize the hallmarks, the facets of a false flag event without claiming everything on earth as a false flag, and then identify that and not fall for it so we don't give up our rights and money and everything else as we've been just kicked in the butt, you know, 11,000 times since 9 11 under this premise that 19 guys with box cutters all by themselves made NORAD stand down, uh, you know. <laughs> flew into the Pentagon without any pictures being taken of it. I mean, just some of this stuff is so completely far out. The Building 7 falling without being hit by a plane and the first building ever, skyscraper, ever to fall from office fires. And I'm actually interviewing Richard Gage tomorrow for our Monday coverage. We're going to be covering it all week on my radio show, James. And, and this is just black and white stuff. It's just black and white stuff. So the most important thing is we know if they do it again. And I'll tell you what, uh, Tuesday... Is a pretty tempting. <laughs> is it Tuesday? Is it Wednesday? Uh, Tuesday. It's Tuesday, yeah. So it's a pretty tempting whole event with the elevens all lining up and maybe something could happen at that point we know Obama's in trouble here politically and that could be just the thing to kinda of, you know wipe the slate clean so we have to be able as you said to identify what is real and what isn't real and then not give up all of our rights in the case which they'll ask us to do again if this happens again
1: of course the underlying driving motivation of 9-11 Truth was, is, and will remain arriving at the truth about what really happened on 9-11, not only for the sake of our own curiosity, but for the sake of the integrity of the historical record by which future generations will guide their society. And if we are able to expose the narrative that has been presented to us as lies, then future generations will be able to understand how easily societies can be lied to and manipulated into going along with agendas that are not in their interests. And, of course, ultimately, what we really want to do is to achieve justice, to bring the perpetrators of those events to justice, and to achieve some sort of justice for the thousands of people who lost their lives that day. But insofar as 9-11 is just one small piece of a much, much bigger history of false flag terrorism that is used... To create problems and to blame those problems on political enemies in order to justify wars and invasions and aggressions, the 9-11 truth has to be about the delegitimization of the supposed authorities who supposedly come along in the wake of every such disaster and calamity to point the finger and then to direct society in that direction and un- unleash the military might of the nation in that direction. We have to be able to break this paradigm of false flag terrorism so that they cannot continue to use it time and time again as they have so many times in the past to lead the nation into war. Not only, of course, the U.S. government, but every government time and again throughout history, has used these types of events in order to blame their political enemies for things which they may or may not have had anything to do with in order to justify wars and aggression. And that is such an important trick that they use. It's an important card that they keep up their sleeve simply because there is a significant percentage of the public that continues to believe what they say without questioning. And the people who do question what they say and do point out the actual evidential lack in what they're saying are then Turned upon by the public, well, you must be able to prove what you're saying and you must be able to prove some alternative theory or I won't listen to you. When we can get past that and when we can get past people asking simplistic and naive questions like why would the government attack itself, then we have moved one step closer towards achieving a society that cannot be manipulated through false flag terrorism. And that has to be as an extremely important point of 9-11 truth. And insofar as that is one of the goals of 9-11 truth, I think we already have had demonstrable success in waking so many people up to the false flag terror paradigm as is evidenced by the fact that even false flag has become something uh, something that's in the general parlance. People actually talk about it. It's less likely that you will need to explain from the beginning when you start a conversation with someone what false flag terrorism is. Most people have at least been exposed to the concept. And more than that, I think it's already had some successes in helping prevent what could potentially have been the next 9-11. For example, back in 2007, it was revealed that Vice President Dick Cheney was floating ideas about dressing U.S. servicemen up as Iranians and putting them on painted uh, PT boats out, out in the streets of Hormuz to attack American vessels in order to justify a response and in an invasion of Iran. And f- thankfully, fortunately, there were military uh, officers and personnel who knew what was going on put their foot down, said no, and leaked the details of that to Seymour Hirsch, so that the public could find out about that plan. That is a demonstrable success insofar as at least people are informed enough to know exactly what a false flag event looks like and what it is likely to lead to and so that people will be less likely to go along with that, including people in the military who are supposed to be expected to go along with these plans. There was also the 2009 Christmas Day underwear bomber scenario, which was largely blown. The, the lid of that was largely blown off by Kurt Haskell, someone who is familiar with the concept of false flag terrorism and who's been following the alternative media for years, and thus was able and was situated to be able to identify what was happening as it was happening on that flight this is extremely important. There are more of us out there than most of us would even give credit for. There's more of us out there who understand these concepts and who are on the lookout for them and will be able to blow the whistle in the event of the next attempted false flag terror event. This is a huge step forward and a huge victory and we have to continue driving the point home that what Obama said at the beginning of today's episode is a lie. The questions have not been answered and the people who could answer those questions will not and in some cases go out of their way to destroy the evidence that would provide any of those answers and when the public starts to wake up to that then the idea of false flag terrorism becoming an obsolete tool becomes just that much more realizable that's it for today I'm your host James Corbett thanking you for joining me for this episode of the Corbett report podcast and asking you to join me again next the week hit the changed history they stood for an hour once the damage was done